0: We are much more than our productivity, and what we bring to science is not our productivity, it's our ideas and our commitment to improving knowledge discourse. Hello world and
1: welcome to Heroyal Science. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode. Today we'll be chatting with Hajar Nakuwa, a neuroscience PhD candidate studying the relationships between brain organization and mental health at the University of Toronto. She previously completed her Bachelor's in Psychology, Neuroscience, and Behavior at McMaster University, and currently does a lot of science communication work via social media, in both English and Arabic. I'm so excited to chat with Hajar today about science, identity, and her work as a science communicator, but let's start from the very beginning. Hajar, what's your story?
0: Um, When it comes to my story... I'll just share a little bit about sort of my upbringing and how I got really into science. Um, So I got into science at a super, super young age, probably around 9 or 10 years old, because my dad is actually a scientist. We had a lot of like random books about science. I used to always read a book called The Young Scientist. that had all these experiments. And so it was just something that seemed really fun and exciting because to me, science was about putting a bunch of things in a tube Something changes color, some sort of explosion happens, and then foam gets everywhere. And that was really fun, and that was a really nice introduction to science. And because of that, I feel like science was always on the back of my mind, no matter what I did. And soon, it didn't just become science as a discipline, it kind of became science as a way of thinking. I started to really enjoy researching random topics. I had a phase where I was really into Planets when I was younger, I was around probably twelve or thirteen at a phase where I was really into um animals and like searching up big cats and it became this fun thing where I would get really deep into all these books that I could find and read about it. I would say that I was perhaps a little bit unusually exposed to science and it just carried with me throughout my life. I think the moment though that I decided to be a scientist was a lot later than this, you know? So this was sort of like the precursor to, you know, why I thought science was always really cool, mm-hmm. but I wasn't sure if it was the life that I wanted to live. And so the the gap is quite large because I, I decided to go into science when I was about 20 years old. So we're talking about like a 10 year difference. There was a point when I realized in high school and undergrad that liking science and being a scientist Are two very different things. Mm -hmm. You can like science because experiments are cool. You love learning new things. You love inquiry and satisfying your curiosity. But being a scientist is a lot more than that. Yeah. And so I had to really figure out whether I liked science enough to want to be a scientist, or whether I liked science enough that it was just going to be this peripheral part of my life. Mm -hmm. And after a lot of thinking, I decided that I liked science enough that I wanted to be a big part of my life. And that's sort of what led me to go into STEM and sort of pursue a career in science. And, um, and now I am, I would say, a neuroscientist.
1: And how did neuroscience come into that story? Because you mentioned planets and you mentioned animals. And now you're studying the brain. How did the brain become the center point of the work that you're doing now?
0: It could seem like a far-fetched jump to go from animals to the brain, but it's not as far-fetched as one may seem. (laughs) I think because of the fact that I was really into reading and learning new things, I found that I naturally was sort of curious about human behavior, and I used to observe a lot of things that I would see and think about why people behaved in a certain way. So human behavior was something that really interested me, more of a topic of inquisition.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And... Neuroscience became kind of popular Mm -hmm. at that time, people were talking about this thing that people could be like a neuroscientist who study the brain. And so I thought if I wanted to study, if I wanted to understand human behavior at its deepest core, I probably need to study the brain. Mm -hmm. And that's why I went into psychology, neuroscience and behavior. And because it was interdisciplinary, there was a lot of these psychological foundations to understand how people were thinking about human behavior. But there was also the neuroscience element that allowed us to better understand what does that mean at the neurological level. Mm -hmm. That story
1: actually sounds really similar to my own because I also did an undergrad in psychology and made it very interdisciplinary by doing a lot of neuroscience courses because I was so intrigued by human behavior and then the biological basis of behavior became even more interesting to me. And then I went on and did a PhD in neuroscience as well. So I'm kind of just grinning at the at what
0: you're saying. It's so nice that you say that because, yeah, it's really interesting to have a really unique fascination with something when you're younger. And I think even my interests, like, you know, throughout the years when I was exploring science as a kid, yeah. all of my interests were really about like observing how we as humans, like, interact to learn new things so all of that was part of human behavior Mm -hmm. and so it's, it's really interesting coming from that and then looking back in hindsight and being like I guess I was always interested in human behavior and so my PhD topic or I guess the goal of my PhD is really to better understand the biological basis of mental health conditions or situations in children and how I'm doing that and how I'm interested in doing that is to better understand brain organization and when it comes to the sort of the neuroscience side, which I think a lot of people are more interested in mm-hmm. now, um, that we actually use magnetic resonance imaging, or I'll just call that MRI or brain imaging, to characterize features of the brain. Mm-hmm. And once we characterize those features, we get a better sense of brain organization. We use that information and see whether any changes in brain organization is related to changes in mental health symptoms or not. Mm -hmm. And that's how we start to tackle this really big and hard question. Is there biological basis of mental health? And what does that look like? It's a very hard question. And my PhD is specifically focused on brain organization and mental health symptoms to try to carve off one edge of a very, very hard question and problem.
1: Mm. Are there certain mental health conditions that you're most interested in or have popped up as lines of investigation at this point of your PhD?
0: I would say that I'm most interested in mental health symptoms. So we'll say things like anxiety, withdrawal, depression, aggression, delinquency rule-breaking behavior in children. And I'm interested in exploring this relationship across the mental health spectrum. So, you know, some of the population I work with are children with autism, children with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, but also typically developing children that do not as of yet have any um, mental health condition. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of am interested in are there shared relationships between brain organization and mental health mm-hmm. across a large population of children that have different mental health diagnoses? And I think that's really useful because it could tell us that maybe these relationships that we call brain behavior or brain mental health relationships mm-hmm. are actually the same across the board. Mm-hmm. And that is really useful to know because that may tell us that the risk of developing another, you know, mental health condition An anxiety disorder, for example, is actually the same with everybody. Or maybe it's different. Maybe there are some mental health diagnoses that are at a greater risk of developing an anxiety disorder later on in life. And so that's how I tackle linking mental health symptoms with mental health diagnoses, but also looking at it much more broadly to find shared relationships across different groups.
1: I love that. And it's it's such a meaningful project. It could have massive ramifications to the healthcare system around the world, really, because mental health, though it's being discussed more and more in the Western world, it is obviously something that affects everybody. Mm -hmm. And conversations are starting to take place all over the world about mental health, not only at our age, but also in younger people, how we can possibly prevent the mental health issues being a a lot more exacerbated later down the line. So I love that you're studying this. And it sounds like you also find it quite fulfilling, which I think is really important. Would you say so?
0: I would say so. Definitely. Um, Definitely intellectually satisfying because these are really difficult problems that have to be really well thought out. And so that's really enjoyable, but it's also enjoyable at the human angle. Um, Doing research is a lot of work and it's definitely not easy, as you probably know. And it's really important that you feel like the work that you're doing is actually impactful. Once you stop feeling that, it's really hard to push through the really difficult days of research. But also, I think you find a lot of fulfillment in your SCICOM work. Can we talk about that a little bit as well? Of course.
1: All right. So when did you first realize that you wanted to be a part of the psychom community and how did you even get started?
0: I would say this, this is, a, I feel like, a similar story with a lot of PhD students. But when you're doing a PhD, it can be a little bit of an isolating experience because nobody really understands what it's like to do a PhD unless you did a PhD. And so I found that I was having a lot of conversations with people um, about the research that I did or like what it does, what does it really mean to be like a neuroscientist? And I, I thought that like, wow, there's not that many PhDs in my community, like women who are pursuing PhDs in my community, particularly in science. There's not a lot of neuroscientists that people can like ask questions to. And neuroscience was like just becoming a pretty hot topic. A lot of people were talking about it. And so I thought, you know, let me just try this thing that I'm seeing. Um, I'm really inspired by Samantha Yamin, who signed Sam on social media. Mm -hmm. And she was like a really big part of, of the inspiration for me to do this. So I thought that it would be cool for me to be able to share neuroscience research and my life as a scientist. I thought it would be kind of cool if I shared this in Arabic because, you know, there's there's quite a gap in knowledge when it comes to the research that happens in the Western world. It getting translated in, in other languages, there's a huge gap in time in which that happens. So I thought, you know, it would be cool if I made a bilingual page and that would allow me to disseminate a little bit more information that may not be accessible for everybody in um, Arabic-speaking countries
1: you are catering to a much broader audience because you're not just doing psychom in English. Are there any things that you have to keep in mind when you do the work that you do?
0: Definitely. I would say the biggest challenge, even beyond whether it's bilingual or not, is the balancing between needing to get things done for a very hectic PhD and SciComm work. And that's constantly like a challenge that you're always facing. So that's definitely, I would say, the biggest challenge. Um, I know that the last year has been super Intense for me when it comes to the PhD, so my cytom work has sort of had to take a backseat. But in terms of specifically being bilingual, it can be a little bit challenging because it's not always clear what the right terminology is to use when you're thinking about something in two languages. There are certain norms that we would communicate with in you know the English-speaking world or the Western world, but it's not, they may not be the same norms when you communicate them to the Arabic speaking world. You know, it's, it's not a one-to-one translation. It's that a lot of thought has to go into communicating an idea for those who sort of live and grew up in a different culture and how is it best to communicate that idea. And so every time I'm crafting a post or information, it's really I'm crafting two separate things meant for two different cultures. And that can definitely be a lot more work But it's also very fulfilling because that is really why we get into sidecom. Like the entire idea is that we want to make sure that a science is accessible to many people and certain people have unique vantage points that they could use to their advantage. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of uh, what I decided to do. And it makes the challenge is worth it, but there definitely are challenges when it comes to like, what are a society's baseline understanding of the brain, for example? Are there certain norms that are important to include when I'm making a post? And I speak Arabic, but I've never, I I have not grown up in the Middle East. I was born and raised in um, the GTA or Toronto, Canada. So not being part of a culture, (laughs) but sharing their language also has its own challenges because it's important for me to make sure that I don't, accidentally um, sort of just explain something in a way that would not take any of the sensitivities of their culture. There's a lot of sort of people that have to help me in this journey. Like I have my parents helping me in terms of like the Arabic and understanding the certain cultural norms that are important to keep in mind when communicating anything. And I wouldn't be able to do it without them. I'm so happy
1: you mentioned that. I think as people are doing more and more outreach work, especially over the last, let's say, year, as people are becoming more and more culturally aware, I think people forget to seek out experts in a particular field to help them navigate that new space. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, a lot of people learn... Spanish is a second language in the States, just as an example. And they feel like they can travel to a predominantly Spanish-speaking country and feel like they can navigate that world and that culture seamlessly when really what you're learning are the words. You're not learning all the nuance of what you were just talking about. The culture, the way people interpret certain words. I think it is so, so important that you mention that. And I'm hoping that the audience can apply what you're talking about in other spaces as well. I do want us to talk a little bit about your identity as a person because you mentioned that you do speak both English and Arabic i also know that you wear the headscarf the hijab what has been your experience walking through academia over the last i'd say what 6 7 years throughout your undergrad and now doing your phd as someone who is visibly muslim are there good things bad things what has been your
0: experience i imagine i share many similar experiences to many other muslim women in academia but the bittersweet and very prevalent thing is Every little thing that you may do may have an assumption that people would have that they'll vocalize to you. And then you'll have to correct that assumption. And that can be very exhausting because you're spending so much time correcting assumptions as opposed to engaging in intellectual discussions, which is what we love about academia. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I definitely find frustrating. There's definitely perceptions about like, how Muslim women are. If you're not perfectly in the prototype that people expect you to be, mm-hmm. people can be very confused about how to deal with you. I think the biggest thing for me in in this space was there was a huge push that Muslim women had very unidimensional personalities and all of us had the exact same story and like <laughs> you can talk to one and know the rest and and we were just ambitious show debtors, but we did not have an actual personality mm. so people would always used to tell me things like oh my god I, I, I would have never imagined you to be so funny like what about me prevented you from like why would you make that assumption that like I wasn't funny initially <laughs> yeah. um that is a plug because you know if my family's out here listening to this they're going to be like you're not even that funny but I am I am actually it is true people do find me pretty funny but it's interesting that that's just like not part of the prototype and so when you show more of your personality there's a lot of confusion about like I just thought you were a ambitious go or. I would never have imagined that you could crack a joke here or there mm-hmm. and so just constantly like hearing things about what they thought you were, what you were supposed to be, how you are so different than how people portray Muslims in the media. Mm-hmm. And those are just a lot of the discussions that happen. And then eventually you kind of, it is frustrating because so much of your energy has to go towards either correcting those assumptions or dealing with um, sort of vocalizing your concerns about those assumptions. And I think that happens all the time to all of us. And, and I think it still happens, even though we've been a little bit louder when we talk about it. Do
1: you think that would change with even a a greater increase in the number of Muslim women who are visibly Muslim in academic spaces or do you think it's just a matter of time and the culture just needs to be expanded a little bit more in the media because if you have one view of what a Muslim is, you watch Netflix, and the only story is a Muslim girl meets some boy and he goes, I like you better without a scarf. And she goes,
0: Okay. And she
1: takes it off. <laughs> if that's your only exposure to Muslim girls, sorry, I might cut that out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I liked it though. I approved. I was like, Yes, yeah, Esma,
1: we're going there. <laughs> it's just, it's a little unfortunate that that's the only viewpoint that people have of us. Like, we're either flimsy in our faith and we'll do anything to appease i don't know greater western norms or something like that what do you think should change in order for the greater view of us to change
0: that's a really good and important question i would say to answer your first question i definitely do think things will change and they have changed Mm. as the um the number of muslim visibly muslim women have increased in academia or just academic spaces in general like even in undergrad um Just because people can see it, oh my God, look, all these people are breaking the stereotype or this prototype I had, maybe the prototype is wrong. And so their brain is kind of like rewiring their own heuristics. Mm. So I think that's a natural evolution that will happen. And I think it has started to happen for sure. But I sort of came in when there weren't that many visibly Muslim women. And mind you, my story in academia is very short. So it's, this wasn't a long time ago, but I came in when there were not that many visibly Muslim women. And the assumptions were just so prevalent because it's like, they only have a prototype and then you're not that Mm -hmm. prototype and they were not sure how to recalculate. Like, where do you fit in this? Now things have changed a lot. And I think the next thing that does need to happen is that There needs to be a genuine acceptance that everybody has their own personality. Muslim women are not a monolith. And we need to communicate with people based on themselves, not based on what we think about them, not based on how they've been represented in the outside world. Because unless we do that and we understand that, then there's always going to be certain assumptions that come up. And it's always going to be visibly Muslim women constantly correcting assumptions. And I sort of made the the joke about being funny, but like for being on a more uh, serious angle, there's also other assumptions like, oh, were your parents supportive of this? And I got that question a lot. Like, do they support your goals? And that's such a weird, and I've never thought about asking someone, hey, do your parents support you having a PhD? Like, that just seems very intuitive. Like someone's parents are probably out there bragging on all the WhatsApp group chats that my daughter's doing a PhD. Like that, that seems like the more intuitive thing. But there's always this question I, that I get asked. And it's really the assumption that, oh, well, I guess your kind isn't like really educated. So maybe you're just the odd one out. Like, how do your parents feel about that? Mm-hmm. So those are more of the real struggles. Because then you have to explain that it's very normal in your family. That, you know, women study. And then there's a whole discussion about the history of women. And then it, it gets so far into it. And then you're like, I really I, I came here to do some neuroscience.
1: I know. it's It's honestly very... Very unfair. And I guess this next question is a perfect addition to this conversation. What do you think mentors should do and could do to change that
0: narrative? So, one important thing is you know, mentors who are typically university faculty um, have power over the type of research that is being done, the type of dynamic that happens in the lab. So mentors have a huge role to play for sure. Obviously, they cannot control what individuals say. But I think the biggest thing is labs that um, tend to have more people from different backgrounds, regardless of what those backgrounds may be, mm-hmm. tend to be more easily accepting and the conversations are much richer. Mm-hmm. So even if one may be talking about the history of... of their family or something like that. Someone else has a story. So it's not that you're on the hot seat, which is what we feel. We feel like we're on the hot seat, Mm -hmm. which is different than it being a discussion. So I think the first thing is, you know, making sure that labs are as diverse as possible, not because it makes labs more productive. Mm -hmm. So I don't like the business argument that like, we need to have more diverse labs because diverse labs produce more. Like that's not why we need to have more diverse labs. We need to have more diverse labs because this is how we get to know each other. We're having enlightening conversations about um, whatever history that we want to talk about or anything like that. So that's number one. Number two, I think that mentors should be really open about giving all of their students this space to sort of share any considerations or things or expectations that that student may have,
1: mm-hmm. it's
0: not easy for a student to bring that up. It's not easy for a Muslim student to say, hey, like, I need a prayer space, actually, um, to pray. Some people are very comfortable doing that. Some people aren't. It seems like a lot to ask. And I understand why that would be the case. So I think, you know, the mentors should kind of, like, if they know enough, sort of bring, bring it up, whether that is, hey, do you need a place, a place to pray? Like, you know, I know some Muslims who do. Or is there anything else that you need from this lab, something that is totally not related to science that would make you feel more comfortable in your mm-hmm. time here? We spend a lot of time in the lab. If it is not a safe space, it is definitely a really unpleasant environment. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that's, you know, those are the two big things that I think mentors can play an important role in because... You know, the easy answer is, oh, mentors should do more research about these groups. But that doesn't necessarily tell them anything about who an individual Muslim is. So I'm always mm-hmm. wary about saying that, like, oh, you should read about how Muslims think. When we're trying to break the monolith, it's more like you should actually give the individual that you're mentoring the space and time to communicate with you in terms of what they feel they need to be more comfortable in this space.
1: Mm-hmm. I was even thinking just with respect to holidays asking for for time off for aid or something like that I remember feeling hesitant to even bring it up because I wasn't sure what the reception is going to be eventually it ended up being fine but do you have any kind of feeling of can I ask for this should I ask for this are they going to think I'm being too demanding or perhaps you didn't and I'm really happy if you didn't but I was wondering if you could speak to that as well
0: I would say that um I have always been someone who just asked for things. I I am, uh, just to make sure I'm being fully honest, I've never been a shy person. And so I, I was someone who would say, hey, I need a prayer room without being asked. One of the bigger things, and this is where I did hesitate. In Ramadan, I wanted to change my work schedule and say that like, hey, I'm going to start a little bit later and end later, but I don't want to be as productive because I want to spend time with my spiritual development and stuff. So that was the first time that I felt like, wow, is that a lot to ask? But then I was like, it's actually not a lot to ask because I work really hard throughout the year. Mm -hmm. And like, it's not that we have to deserve time for spiritual development, but if we did, I felt like I deserved it. And so I did ask and I explained what Ramadan was um, and it worked out that way. And I find that in my experience, people are really willing to accommodate. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just important that the mentors or whoever has like some sort of uh, power or highest status, Mm -hmm. they're the ones that are very open to starting the conversation because it is intimidating to say, hey, I have 30 full days Mm -hmm. and those 30 days are going to be very different. I, you know, I may not make it to morning meetings. I prefer not to have morning meetings. Like that does seem like a lot to ask. You want your supervisor to like you. And so it's really on the mentor, the supervisor to um, start those conversations. But yeah, I would say it was Ramadan where there was a lot of changes to my schedule. And that was the first time I was like, okay, like this is a lot. But I still sort of pushed through those feelings because it's like what you bring into science is everything about you. It's like your entire life experience. And none of that should be taken away from you or sort of um, reduced because you want to like be the perfect student or employee or whatever. You are the perfect PhD candidate, student, employee, or academic because you're bringing your best forward and your best comes with your entire life experience. Mm -hmm. Everything we ask seems like a lot to ask. It seems like, man, like, are they going to feel like, wow, this person feels entitled to ask me such a thing. Yeah. But in reality, we're the ones doing the research, you know? So it's like, and so that's sort of how I had to think about it, that if I do good work throughout the year, I am for sure allowed to take a little bit more time off and be a little bit less productive because we are much more than our productivity. And what we bring to science is not our productivity. It's our ideas and our commitment to improving knowledge discourse. And so when I thought about it like that, which is very different than how we've been trained to think about it, that's when I just started feeling like, okay, there's no reason for me To feel bad about taking two days off, and we've sort of been taught that science is all about our productivity, and the way that it's structured right now, it definitely is. But I'm hoping that we move towards you know the olden days in science, where science was about sharing ideas and knowledge, and that can happen at any time during the year, and it doesn't have to happen every day during the year.
1: Speaking of productivity, I'm wondering if you'd be interested slash willing to talk about what it's been like to be doing a PhD. During the pandemic,
0: what was that like? We're really going there, Asma. Like you really dropped this question on me. Okay, (laughs) sorry. How much time do we have? As much time as you want, because you have such a beautiful vantage point
1: of making sure that you recognize that productivity is not the ultimate end goal. And as much as people said that during the pandemic, and supervisors started being a little bit more more sympathetic, I also saw on social media that. Graduate students and other trainees were still feeling the burden to be as productive, if not more productive, during the pandemic than they were pre pandemic. And it kind of bothered me because there's literally a global pandemic happening. You shouldn't have to feel the need to be productive. Maybe just surviving is enough. But I'm wondering how it was for you. Did you feel like you had to maintain some level of productivity or did you walk into the pandemic with very similar? vantage point to the one that you just shared that you know productivity isn't everything
0: so I would say in full transparency that the vantage point I shared about productivity is more of an intellectual idea that I'm hoping to adopt it pushes me to like you know reframe things but that doesn't mean I'm I'm always good at it, you know, because there's always a pressure where it's like, I understand the way that we view productivity is wrong. But if I want a position in academia, I still have to abide by these rules. And so that's sort of the, the chokehold that we're in. Mm-hmm. And I would say definitely in the pandemic, there was like three weeks where people in academia just kind of had it off, like nobody bothered you. But I think after that, there was a really strong push of like, oh, wow, we're not commuting. We're working from home. We can work even more hours. I can join meetings at 6 a.m. because I, I don't need to commute to the lab. And there was a huge push of like absolute productivity, like Total, no more work-life balance, and people were like, "Oh, I have nothing to do, so I might as well work extra." Mm. You see that on social media. So there's like some social pressure for you to also want to work extra. And so I would say that, yeah, doing a PhD in the pandemic, when um, I did about so far fifty percent or more of my PhD during this pandemic, it was extremely tough because my favorite part of being part of the science community is a socializing. It's really having that really nice, serendipitous science discussions, going to conferences, sharing ideas. That's why I got into this. But the pandemic took all of that away and sort of left the really tough, grueling parts of science, which I still like, but I don't like all the time. And there was definitely sort of a social, a very subtle social you know, norms where we're sort of all working all the time, mm-hmm. and that was the norm and so, if you were not working all the time, you just felt like, "Wow, someone else has generated up more papers out of this than me, so maybe I need to work even harder." So I found that i my work life balance was atrocious, there was no balance during the pandemic, and I worked a lot more than I typically would ever allow myself to work um and as we are sort of in this weird um sort of getting back to normal. One may call it a faux normal mm-hmm. phase. I'm really working on getting my work life balance a lot more in order. Um, because definitely doing a PhD in a pandemic is really tough. There's a lot of emotional difficulties too of you compare people who are being super productive and just ramping out their papers and you're being really productive and working a lot but you're not ramping out papers. And there's a lot of that going on. So um, in general, is definitely not a fun place to be. And I am looking forward to a little bit more normalcy to remind me about why I got into science, which is really about um the exchange of ideas.
1: If you could close your eyes and picture your life 10 years from now, is there something that you know needs to be a part of your life?
0: I would say fulfillment. And I know that's not, it's an intangible thing. So I, I'm going to answer it maybe differently than others. But I think what's the most important thing is that whatever you're doing, it does not have to be work because work, we are way more than our work, mm-hmm. but it's constantly feeling fulfilled. And that always needs to be a part of my life. Um, and as long as I am deriving or getting fulfillment of what I do, then that will be what I consider the ideal life. Every career or path is, is tough. And if you're not getting fulfillment, it's really hard to push through the tough times. And I think that's something that we all learned about in the pandemic. That when when so much of what we like about work is stripped away, do we still like what we do? And that's an important thing that we all have to contemplate for the future.